Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Responding to a recent episode on COVID-19 in Utah, Lisa O'Brien wrote us to say she had founded a Utah COVID-19 long haulers group. She says many are still struggling with long-term effects of COVID. Some have hit eight months or longer. Studies are now showing that at least 10% are ending up with long-term effects and that post-COVID-19 care centers are going up across the country for long haulers to help those dealing with post-viral symptoms. We're going to talk about this today on the program. Uh, We'll be talking with uh, Lisa O'Brien, who founded that Utah COVID-19 long haulers group. Uh, Lisa O'Brien, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Good, good to have you on. Uh, we'll also be talking with Stacy Linderman. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank good, you. You're welcome. Good morning. And uh, Christine Mon has joined us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, so let me start with uh, Lisa O'Brien. Um, I want to frame this. You you were quoted in the Deseret News uh, as saying this is more than life or death, right? Um, and we do... Uh, I'm quoting from the Atlantic magazine, our understanding of COVID-19 has accreted around the idea that it kills a few and is mild for the rest. Uh, and the, the, the writer goes on to say it's ca- kind of calcified. Uh, hopefully that's changing. Uh, so, Lisa O'Brien, uh, t- tell me your story. Uh, I think it's March, right? You started experiencing symptoms? Yeah. Um, I just had my eight-month anniversary on the 11th of this month. Um, So uh, I I started getting sick three days after I got home from Hawaii back in March. Uh, Back then, it was harder to get a test. You know, you had to have the three uh, symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, fever. I never had a fever this whole time um, and only a mild cough. And so by the time I got a test and got tested, it was a couple of weeks later, and so it came back negative, um, which would have been fine had everything gone away, right? But, um, you know, my, my initial symptoms were pretty mild. The shortness of breath uh, was a little rough. You know, even just talking on the phone for 20 minutes left me breathless. And, you know, I, I just always thought, there's no way this can be covid um, week five, six, and seven, I was feeling lots better. I started walking. I wanted to gain, get my strength back. I wanted to, you know, make sure that I, um, wasn't putting myself at risk of getting pneumonia by just laying around. And I actually walked like 43 miles in the month of April. You know, some days I did a thousand steps, some days I did 10,000 steps. Um, and by week eight, I had all these, uh, like nervous system dysfunction type symptoms start happening. So um, heart palpitations, internal vibrations uh, or tremors, um, body aches that I could not get rid of, like intense body aches I couldn't get rid of. And around that same time, I found uh, a few um, long hauler groups. Uh, One of the first ones I found was called COVID or long haul COVID fighters. And it was uh, named after the trucker hat that the founder was wearing the day that she uh, created the group. So that's kind of where the long hauler name comes from. Uh, We, you know, Mm -hmm. members from across the world were in that group, and um, we just kind of started nicknaming ourselves the long haulers. Uh, But anyways, I found them. Everybody's having these internal vibrations, all these very unique, distinct symptoms. You know, it's not like we found each other and we're still having runny noses. Um, Tachycardia. 
You know, so over the next several weeks, I started getting tachycardias, really high heart rate. Um, and that started happening to me just from standing up. Uh, I got a blood clot in my arm in week 11. I had a blood clot in my lung in week 12. Um, at this point, my kids are driving me to all my doctor appointments because my blood pressure is high and low. My heart rates varied anywhere from 30 to 221 for a couple months. Uh, I found a program, a recovery program at Mount Sinai in week 13, and they screened me to get in. And I just said, you know, clotting, tachycardia, and internal tremors. And they were like, yeah, you had COVID. We're seeing thousands like this out here. Um, And I'm still in that program to this day. I actually just met with my clinician about 20 minutes ago. Um, We meet weekly. But um, there's kind of a pattern. Symptoms come and go. Some days you feel uh, like you're finally kicking it. And then the next day they all come back. Um, New stuff is constantly showing showing up. Um, you know, I've, over the last couple months, I've started having more issues like cognitive issues, um, word recall, short-term memory issues. Um, I'm dealing with post-exertional malaise, which means if I overexert myself, um, I, it, it can wipe me out. And sometimes it takes me a week to recover from that. So I really have to like be careful uh, with how much energy I'm expending. Um, I'm also dealing with insomnia, um, and, and my heart has calmed down quite a bit, but um, it's still I still have periodic episodes, or some nights I'll, you know, wake up um, with with my heart at, like, 150, but it doesn't happen as often as it, it, as it was. It was doing it, like, every night for a while, um, and so that's kind of where I am now, and uh, there's really no answers, you know, we're just kind of waiting it out and hoping that it eventually goes away 100%. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I can only imagine the emotions, right? Eight months on, we'll, uh, we'll mm-hmm. loop, loop back around to you. I want to hear uh, Stacey Linderman's uh, story. It's, I know, uh, so Lisa, Brian, you're in Roy, right? Yeah. Um, so Stacey Linderman, where, where, where do you live? I am in Ogden. You're in, you're in Ogden. Okay. Well, yeah. tell me, tell me your, your story. Mine started in about March. I just, I didn't have a fever. I had just a really light cough, but the body aches is what got me. I just hot heating pads, massages, trying to get it to go away, and it just wouldn't. And, but we were at that point in time where you couldn't just go get a COVID test. You had to have the symptoms. And my boss from work called me and told me that I needed to go get tested because someone that I worked with had tested positive. So I called, it was the middle of the night, to set up an appointment for the next morning. And that morning I woke up and I felt like I just had this elephant sitting on my chest. I couldn't breathe. And so we went to go get the test at an IHC, and we pulled in to start the testing, and they did the oxygen level. And she just looked at me and she says, we're not going to test you. She says, we want you in the clinic now. So at this point, I'm getting a little scared. Um, we go in. The doctor come in, and he said, I'm putting you on a ventilator for a few days just so that I can take charge of your breathing. I had no idea what a ventilator was, and no one explained it to me. I looked at my husband. I said, I'm scared. They brought in an ambulance to rush me to the hospital. 
honestly, that's all I remember. I woke up a month later, and I lost the whole month of April. Come to find out, when I got admitted, I had acute renal failure, pneumonia, dehydration, um, lung failure. While I was on the ventilator, I developed double pneumonia. Um, when I woke up, I could no longer walk. I had lost all of my body muscle mass. I couldn't talk from the tube being down my throat for a few days. Um, I was in an ICU for about a week after I woke up. I'm just stubborn, stubborn enough to go home. Um, I still, I'm out of breath. I can't even walk out to my car now without being short of breath. When Lisa says you have bad days and good days, you, you, you wake up and your whole body just aches. You, it's everything you have to get out of bed. I've lost about 80% of my hair from this. Um, the headaches I get are horrendous. I suffer PTSD now from the nightmares from being in the coma. Stress, anxiety, you name it, depression. I, you know, I have this depression of why did I survive? And there's so many out there that didn't. You know, and this just has to get out that this is serious. Yeah, that boy, that's I, I, and so uh, about eight months for you as well. This happened yes, started I'm in March. At my yeah, eight month mark. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, inc- incredible. I want to hear from uh, Christine Mon. Uh, Christine Mon, where where are you? Where do you live? So I, I live in Logan. In Logan, um, okay, all right. Uh, well, tell me, tell me your story. Yeah, um, so it started for me in March as well. It was um, March twenty fourth. I actually know the day. I couldn't taste sriracha, the hot sauce. And at the time, we weren't um, talking about a lack of taste on its own. We were kind of talking about a lack of taste being linked to a lack of smell. It was the only thing I couldn't taste. Um, I could still taste everything else. So I I remember I went to my spice cupboard and I started smelling my spices and my sense of smell was still intact. So I thought, okay, I I don't have COVID. Um, And I also developed a rash on my face, which was something that we weren't yet aware of being a COVID symptom. And I was actually like that for about two and a half weeks. Um, I I was a little tired, but, you know, it was a pandemic and everybody was stressed. And so I, I thought I was fine. And then um, on in mid-April, I was, I was tested on April 11th, so the weekend right before that, I started having some pretty intense breathing problems. When I would try to breathe in, it just felt like there were thousands of tiny knives in my chest. It was horrifically painful. I had no energy. Um, it was actually Easter weekend, and I was trying to color some eggs with my daughter, and I couldn't even sit at the table and, and color eggs with her. So I um, actually ended up calling into my ENT that week, and they told me to get tested. I was really lucky in that I was able to get tested. I did not have a fever at the time, and it was actually the week that they had changed that requirement. So I'm, in many ways, I'm lucky in that I was able to get tested that early, and it did come back positive. So I tested positive. My test results came in on April 16th. Um, At that point, I went into isolation in my master suite. I was there for 28 days. My family was quarantined to our property for 28 days. Part of why I was in quarantine for so long is because of ongoing symptoms. Um, Like Stacey said, at at one point, I also ended up having that feeling of an, an elephant on your chest. By the time I ended up in isolation, the breathing problems were pretty intense, and I just felt like there were books stacked on my chest or something. It was really, really hard to breathe. 
And I had, you know, kind of the typical acute phase symptoms. Um, I had chills and rigors and nausea and intense fatigue, dizziness upon standing. Um, and I kept wondering why I wasn't getting better, you know. They, I remember actually being in isolation when I hit the three-week point, which in the state of Utah is where they technically count you as recovered if you've survived to, to the three-week mark. And I was still very acutely ill. In fact, on my um, third week after diagnosis, I was actually at Instacare being treated from the passenger seat of my car while there was a doctor in full PPE telling me I was most likely still contagious and I needed changes in my medication. Eventually, I was released from isolation in part because I was not running fevers or at least not very high fevers at the time. It was like 99.5. Um, but I still continue to have symptoms. I had inflammation in my lungs. I had rashes dizziness, intense fatigue, a lot of that persists to this day. The, the breathing has gotten better. It's not perfect. I still have shortness of breath and chest pain. Um, but much like Lisa was saying, if I, I have to be really careful if I overdo it, everything, a lot of symptoms do seem to come back. I also have problems regulating my heart rate and blood pressure. I've been dealing with hair loss. Um, my lack of taste will also still come and go, which is interesting. I'll have days where I can taste just fine. And then if I if I overdo that, that goes too. Um, I also have um, purple spots on my skin, which they've determined is from leaky capillaries, which is, which is interesting. And I actually have more fevers now than I did when I was in the acute phase. I now all often um, have fevers in the, the low 100s. So that's kind of where things stand at this point is just a lot of like Lisa was saying, just being really careful not to overdo it, because if I do overdo it, I find myself feeling quite ill again. Yeah, for, and for you, it sounds like eight months-ish this has been going on. Yeah, yeah. So it's been over seven months since I tested positive and almost eight months since first onset of symptoms. Yeah, yeah, just uh, yeah, just incredible. Um, before we go to break, uh, Lisa, Brian, I want to talk about uh, you know you, you, kind of the overall picture. So... Uh, you know, we don't know a whole lot about this, um, still being studied, and I understand many of these studies patient-led, right? You have to kind of get in there and, and, uh, and um, you know, push for yourselves. Um, but at least 10% of those uh, having COVID, we don't know, it might be much higher, at least 10% ending up with long-term effects. And the demographics of this, more, more women than men, right? And, and uh, quite a few young people or, you know, middle-aged people. Yeah. Um, so the most recent study that uh, I just read about that was done by um, Michigan or the University of Michigan uh, said that 26.2% of their participants had not fully recovered and um, they were anywhere from 10 to 29 weeks into recovery. And then Dr. Fauci said in an interview um, a week or two ago that in the studies that he's involved with, they're seeing 25 to 35% um, not recovering after the you know initial two to three weeks that the CDC first said. Uh, and you're correct, uh, most of us, most are female. I looked at the demographics in just the Utah long hauler group this morning, and 81% are female. Um, that could also be because, you know, men don't typically seek out support groups online. Um, but, yeah, we are seeing more female. And in our group, in the Utah group, 
about 60% of us are in between the ages of 35 and 54. And then 25 to 34, there's 17%. And 55 to 64-year-olds, there's 14%. So we are a fairly, you know, younger younger group. Yeah, and and so, you know, given those projections and the number of cases and uh, who knows when this the pandemic will wind down, uh, it, it could be hundreds of thousands of folks suffering from, you know, long-term effects. Yeah, based off those figures right now, I looked last night and I, I believe Utah's at 159,000 confirmed cases. Um, and just going off of that number, you know, if 10 to 35% are affected by these persistent system, symptoms, um, that could be anywhere from like 15,000 people to 55,000 people that end up like this. Um, so, and that's, uh, you know, just right now, our numbers are growing every day. Uh, so it'll likely, you know, it could likely be more. Uh, I want to, um, again, before we go to break, uh, I want to get into how, you know, the experience in the medical system. From what I've been reading from, you know, for, about this is um, many with, with long-term symptoms of uh, COVID ha- have had very similar experiences to those who have suffered, you know, syndromes like chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, in other words, skepticism from the medical community. Uh, not being believed, uh, having to go in and try to <laughs> prove that you're sick and that it's not all in your mind to your to your doctor. Did, did you experience that, Lisa Brown? I did. Actually, uh, both times uh, with my blood clots, I had to see two different doctors, two different days at two different clinics. Um, with the one in my arm, I saw a doctor through a telemed appointment, and he told me at the end of the call that, Viruses don't last 70 days, which they don't, but I was still having symptoms at 70 days. Um, And he told me he didn't believe I had a blood clot in my upper extremity. And he gave me a phone number to a therapist's office, um, told me to call them the next day, and told me to reach out to my GP and get on some anxiety medication. Um, And then, like, a day later, I went and I was seen in person by another doctor. And within seconds, he was like, yeah, you have a blood clot in your arm. And then, you know, with my blood clot in my lung, same thing. They told, you know, they tried to uh, talk to me about what, how my symptoms look like anxiety and asked me if I had people I could talk to. And then, you know, I, I made them uh, do a, a, a blood test that shows clotting material in your blood before I left. Um, and it came back elevated. And so they had to do a CT scan and it showed a clot in my lung. So... Yeah, it's been tough. Uh, Stacy Linderman, uh, same question to you. What, what's what's been your experience with interacting with the medical community? Did you encounter any skepticism, or or were your symptoms um, accepted? With my doctor, I'm pretty much his first COVID case. So if I say I have something wrong, he's taking it that yes, I do, because he knew as much as I did going into this. I did. A week after I got out of the hospital, though, I called. I had read that COVID causes blood clots, and my arm was, you know, still in pain. I just put it off as the shot, the IV that was running through my arm is still being sore. So a week later, I called his office, and it's like, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm self-medicating here, but I think I have a blood clot, and 
his receptionist was like, no, because COVID doesn't ca- cause blood clots. And um, I finally just went to the ER. And I told him, I think I have a blood clot. And the doctor felt my arm. He's like, no, you don't have a blood clot, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an ultrasound just in case. And yes, I did have a blood clot. Yeah, they're just, most doctors aren't, aren't realizing the different symptoms that are coming with this. You know, I tell my doctor I'm exhausted, and he believes me just because he's taking everything I'm saying as, okay, you know, these are the different effects that are going on. I haven't yet been not believed other than the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's good. Uh, Christine Mon, what what's been your experience interacting with medical community? You know, I've been really lucky in that I've had a wonderful team of doctors. Um, they've they've been kind, and they ask. I haven't been met with skepticism. Um, the most challenging part is just a lack of knowledge, in part because it's a it's a novel virus. Um, they they believe me. They know I, I have some things that are very verifi- verifiable that are going on, um, but they don't yet know how best to treat it which is a challenge both in terms of um, we need to provide ongoing education to the medical community, and we also, it's just, it's a new virus. You know, nobody knows for sure how long these symptoms will last or in many ways how best to treat them. Um, So while I'm able to continue to get medical care, it's still, a lot of it's still just a guessing game. Um, I remember when I went to the ER, when I was in isolation, I was having some pretty severe breathing problems. I met with an online doctor. They told me to go to the ER. And the ER doctor at the time said to, they were d- debating whether or not to admit me to the hospital. I, I did not end up staying. But um, he said to me that I probably knew more about COVID than he did. And this was maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe a, two weeks after I'd been diagnosed. And while I completely appreciated his honesty, it was just kind of this reminder that in many ways we were very much on our own because nobody quite knew exactly what to do with us. I, I do think it's getting better. It's, it's improving, absolutely. But, in, it's, you know, it's in, we need ongoing research. And in many ways, those of us that, that caught this early were, were kind of trailblazers. So. Yeah, that's it. it is. Uh, there's a lot we don't know, right? Uh, on the one hand, <laughs> your, your doctor has refreshing honesty. On the other hand, uh, I don't know how reassuring that is. That you knew more than he did at that point. Yeah, and I, I didn't actually at that point. I mean, I was yeah. only two weeks in, and I was I was really quite ill. Um, but I did appreciate his honesty. But yeah, yeah I, I I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's take a break. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, COVID nineteen long haulers. Uh, long haulers, if you're not familiar with the term, um, is are uh, are folks who are still still experiencing symptoms, sometimes very severe symptoms. Up to eight months uh, after uh, they had uh, COVID-19. Um, and uh, so what do we do? Uh, how do we learn more? And what do we know about this? And uh, all of the ins and outs, we're talking with the three members of the COVID-19 Long Haulers group, Lisa O'Brien, Stacy Linderman, and Christine Mon. We'd love to hear your story. If uh, perhaps you're a long hauler or just have a comment on this, you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and CAPSA, a nonprofit rape crisis center, providing free and confidential services for cash and rich counties, including support phone line, rape exam advocacy, and clinical therapy. 
information at capsa.org. Support also comes from USU Extension's Stay Happy, Stay Healthy campaign. During this holiday season, stay connected in safe and innovative ways, like making front porch visits or sending care packages to loved ones. More tips available at stayhappystayhealthy.usu.edu. Why is it proving so difficult to stop climate change and the destruction of the natural world? The BBC's Justin Rowlett chairs a remote debate with leading scientists, business people and activists to try to come up with some answers to the most pressing issue of our times. That's World Questions from the BBC. Saturday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both sides of the aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us on Access Utah today. Today we're talking about COVID-19 long haulers, folks who have been experiencing sometimes very severe ongoing symptoms, problems, after they were quote-unquote recovered, or supposed to have been recovered, according to the definition from COVID-19. Um, and we're talking with uh, members of the uh, COVID-19, Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Group, Lisa O'Brien, Stacey Linderman, and Christine Mon. Uh, so Lisa O'Brien, uh, you, you're quoting the Deseret News. Uh, you say it's, it's not just all about life or death. There's this middle ground that some of us get stuck in. It can last for weeks or months. And I think we do focus on the deaths, as we should, right? Uh, the IMHE uh, saw the latest projections. By January February, we might have an excess of 400,000 deaths. So that, that's, that's just horrible. But I think we have this mindset of, uh, you know, some are, you know, uh, uh, that's an, an incredibly horrible number. The, the, those are going to die. But the rest, or many of the rest, uh, have maybe, you know, not so bad symptoms. There is there is this middle ground. Um, so I wonder. I want to. I want to pause and talk about the emotions of this. When when did you first uh, start to think, "Hey, this isn't. I'm not getting over this." And and what were your emotions at this point? Uh, it was probably week seven or eight. Um, I just you know couldn't kick it, and and again I had tested negative, and so. Um, I'm still like, okay, maybe it's just allergies. And I, you know, was trying all different kinds of kinds of things. But I remember the very first time that I ever went to the ER um, was on day 62. And I remember telling the, the nurse um, that I had been sick for 62 days and I couldn't you know, I, I had had this bo- these body aches that I couldn't get rid of, and my heart was going crazy. Um, and I remember telling her, like, I can't do this much longer. Um, this has really given me a lot of empathy for those that struggle with chronic illness and have dealt with things like this for decades. I don't know, like, that takes so much strength. I don't know how um, how people live like this um, with these debilitating symptoms. Uh, but 
you know, as far as like emotions go, there's, um, you know, there's, there definitely is a mental health piece to this, right? You know, we've been sick for months and months, um, and it has been life changing. You know, like I said, for a while there, my kids, and I, you know, adult kids had to drive me to all my doctor appointments. Um, I went to the ER about eight times in between month three and five, mostly for heart issues. Um, and one of them would drive me to the ER and drop me off, and the other would come and pick me up later, you know, because they couldn't go in with me. Um, I had to start using a shower chair to shower because every single time I stood up, my heart rate would spike to 160. There were a couple weeks that I stopped sleeping except for two to three hours a night because every night when I would sleep, um, I would either get like a random adrenaline rush that would wake me up, or I would just wake up and my heart rate would be at 160. Um, and usually, you know, I would sit down to get it to drop, but I was already laying down. And so to try and, like, maintain some control over my body, you know, I would I would fight sleep until I couldn't, um, couldn't anymore. And um, I think that I prob- there's probably some trauma stuff that I deal with, too, because, you know, you're going to the doctors for these really terrifying things and being in the first wave they had no clue uh that this was going to happen post-covid you know you either got it and you were better in 14 days or you ended up in the hospital and you possibly didn't survive and so um you know you there there was a lot of times that i felt really lost like and hopeless like where do i go if the medical community can't answer my questions like I can't live like this for the rest of my life. And so, um, you know, there probably some depression and, yeah, lots of lots of emotions like that. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Uh, Stacey Linderman, what uh, what about you? Did uh, At a certain point, it, I guess it probably dawns on you. This is, this is turning into chronic. Mine, I tend to just think, you know, this is just part of it because, Mine was so severe that I was put on a ventilator. I still have, you know, the, the lung issues. And I thought by now they'd be gone. But I also realized that my lungs were, my lungs went through a lot while being on the ventilator. I was just really hoping it to be fixed by now. My oxygen level still, I cannot maintain a 90 to 95% percent rate. I usually sit down between the 80s and the 70s. As you can hear, I can't even talk without running out of breath. And, you know, the doctors don't know what to do, you know, because it's all new to them. You know, so you start to feel like you're just alone. And then when I found Lisa's group, I realized I'm not by myself. You know, whether the doctors believe you have this or not, Someone in that group knows that you're 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 not faking it, that it's real, and that we're still suffering from them. I I still I can't sleep at night because I have nightmares from the ventilator, and so my doctor has me on sleeping pills. I haven't had any issues really with my heart rate, but you know, no one no one believes you that you're still suffering. I just barely went to work back to work I haven't worked since March and it wasn't because you know of anything it was me because I wasn't ready 
you know, I'm still weak from being on the ventilator, and I don't dare overdo it because then I'm down for days. Mm. You know, so luckily my employer was really understanding, and I went back with with minimal hours. You know, and they're like, they tell me, you know, just let us know what you need, and we'll accommodate that for you. And they've never said, hey, you're just getting out of work, you know. They they believe me for what I say. Mm-hmm. So le- I've been really lucky in most of mine. I just, I feel now that I'm not alone in suffering all of this. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad your employer is working with you as well. Um, uh, Christine Mon, I wonder, I, I, I can imagine I would probably have fears if I was eight months in. Um, and, and you say some of your symptoms have thankfully gotten better, but others haven't. I, I don't know what your feeling is going forward. Do you have fears that it's just going to go on forever? Oh, I, absolutely. Um, I, you know, much like Lisa was saying, I don't, I, I do try to remind myself that I'm, I'm really lucky. Um, my case was considered mild because I was never hospitalized and I, I, you know, I survived. I'm, I'm, I'm still here, which is, which is very fortunate. Um, on the other hand, though, I would like to get back to the things that I, that I enjoy, the things that I do, the way I normally live my life. I'm, I'm 38 years old, and other than a touch of exercise-induced asthma, I was quite healthy before this. So I spent my, a lot of my spare time hiking and skiing and biking and those types of things. Um, and I'm not able to do that anymore, and that is a challenge both um, – physically and psychologically. I also, I have an eight-year-old daughter and she's doing distance learning from home and my husband works outside of the home. So she's with me, you know, um, Monday through Friday as we try to get through her schoolwork. And I feel for her. It's, it's, it's hard for her. Um, she has to, you know, I'm constantly needing to take naps or needing to take breaks or say, I can't do that right now. I don't have enough energy. And she. Yeah, she's struggling with that a bit. Um, she'll ask me when I'm going to get better and if I'm ever going to be able to play tag with her again. And I don't know how to answer those questions. Um, but on the other hand, I'm really determined. I, we're, you know, we're trying to work with various doctors and find resources and help with research so that hopefully someday those of us that are still struggling can get back to a um, hopefully a more normal way of life but i'm i'm still definitely not who i was before i before i caught covid-19 mm, yeah uh, lisa brian i want to talk about did this um did this in affect your employment um i am very fortunate that i get to work from home um and i have a desk job so you know it doesn't require me to be uh, very physically active. There were uh, some some points, you know, during months four and five when I was having the crazy heart issues and could barely get out of bed. But I took a bunch of time off uh, just to try and focus on healing and recovering. Um, and now, you know, like this week, I had a bunch of doctor appointments. And so I've taken, you know, a bit of leave this week to go to my doctor appointments. Um, but for the most part, I'm, I'm a financial analyst, so I do notice, like, with my cognitive issues, though, I'm having to, like, make sure that I'm taking 
making lists and taking good notes of like everything that I need to get done and, you know, marking it off just because, you know, my, my mind isn't uh, as sharp as it was. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of as far as it's really affected. I, I'm very grateful for uh, where I work because they've been, uh, they've worked with me so much and they, you know, really care about, their employees and about, um, you know, my recovery. And so that's been really awesome. I wonder, Lisa Brown, about, uh, do you have new folks joining your group or reaching out? Uh, Another, you know, the the three of you eight months in, um, you know, early on with with the, um, you know, catching uh, COVID and, and, and now dealing with these symptoms. But I imagine there are people who, uh, you know, have been through COVID more recently and, and it's maybe now dawning on them that, Hey, I've, I've got some chronic symptoms. Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning I created the Utah group back in June. And the reason I did that was because I was tired of waiting for like national news to trickle down to the local level and nobody here was listening to me. You know, I was reaching out to um, health departments and state officials and, I just realized I needed to find all the others here to show that, you know, this is an issue and we're going to need help. Um, and so in the beginning, you know, Utah's cases were, were so low that we weren't really standing out here and there weren't, you know, very many of us. I remember when I got into the Mount Sinai program back in May, the clinician was surprised um, when I told him that most people in Utah hadn't heard of long callers yet because they were seeing thousands out there, you know. Um, and initially, like, you know, the growth of the group has been, you know, close to maybe a hundred a month. Um, and I just looked this morning and for October, we had a 5% increase in membership. We had about 66 new members, um, just in the last 18 days of November, we have had a 61% increase and we have um, added 331 new members. And so we're at 833 now. And, you know, that number is just going to continue to climb. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Lisa O'Brien, Stacy Linderman, and Christine Mon uh, from the Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Group. That's our subject for today, and uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. If uh, perhaps you have experiences in this area of family members or just your question or comment, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Holiday programming on UPR is made possible in part by AARP Utah. November, Family Caregiver Month, recognizes the dedication and sacrifice of family caregivers across the country. Learn more about what AARP Utah is doing to support family caregivers at aarp.org slash caregiving. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Old-fashioned beef stew. 
We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about long haulers, COVID-19 long haulers, that is. These are folks who are still experiencing uh, problems, symptoms, uh, severe medical problems. Uh, in some cases, uh, eight months or, or more uh, following uh, their experience with uh, COVID-19. And so their COVID-19 experience continues and in many ways has changed their lives. Um, and we're talking about uh, w- with uh, Lisa Bryan, who founded the Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Group, also with Stacy Linderman and Christine Mon. Uh, about 10 minutes left in the conversation. Lisa O'Brien, I want to uh, talk about what what you're asking. What, what would help? I know um, th- there are other states, other places have long hauler centers. I don't know. That there, I don't think there is one in Utah. But uh, that would that be helpful? Yeah, so there's not currently one in Utah. Um, if you go to Survivor Corps, C-O-R-P, like Paul S. dot com. Um, they actually have a list of the known 24 uh, post-COVID care clinics that are open now across the country. Um, and most of those post-COVID care clinics, um, when they, you know, get them started, most of them are booked out until like January, February, because they're, su- they're in such high demand. Uh, we actually met with uh, some people from the University of Utah uh, last night uh, that are involved in research, and we talked about, you know, um, ways that we can try and uh, get recognition and find all the people that are still dealing with these symptoms. Uh, we also talked about the need for post-COVID care centers, um, and they were in agreement with us that you know, it seemed like that was something that they really needed to look at. And so they were going to start trying to open up discussions with uh, those, you know, their higher ups. Um, And so, yeah, you know, post-COVID care centers, recognition and research, um, we're actually going to team up with them and try and help uh, fundraise. They've They've got some money already for research into the long-term effects of COVID, but they're still short. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to do some we're going to do some fundraising with them to try and raise the rest of the money. They do have people interested right now in uh, the cardiology, pulmonology, and neurological um, effects of the long-term symptoms, uh, and so. Really great stuff, I think, you know, is going to be happening. And and that really gives a lot of us hope that we might be able to figure this out. And especially for those that, you know, follow behind us, follow this path behind us. That was another reason, you know, that I started the group was I don't want anybody else to have to go through this uh, like, like we have, you know, with no answers and nowhere to turn. Uh, Stacey Linderman, what uh, overall, what would you like to see happen? What would help? I would just, I would like to see people actually doing what they can to get this to, to stop. 
Um, we do need the the post COVID centers. You know, we need we need to be believed. You know, and take what we're saying as this is really going to happen. You know, you may not be one of the ones that get the long haulers, but someone you know will. You know, and just kind of be empathetic to those that that say they you know they're suffering this and that. You know, we all have to be on the same page with this. Mm-hmm. Christine Mon, same question to you. What what would help? What would you like to see happen? I think that um, Lisa and Stacey touched on most of it. I, I think one more thing that I would add would be easy access to ongoing education for medical providers. Um, when you have COVID-19, often the person you're working with the most is your, is your primary care provider, and they're busy. They have lots of patients with, you know, all different types of illnesses. Um, I don't have time to keep up on all of the latest research and what have you, and I'm just, you know, one person. I, and so I know that they don't. Um, and we, we did also discuss this a bit with, with the U yesterday as well, but just some very basic information that we could get out to medical providers um, that was, you know, brief, that they could that they could look over and have a basic idea on as far as, you know, what is long COVID, what does it look like, you know, these are various ways that we're seeing um, improvements through treatment and, and what have you. And that could kind of, if we do, if they do open a post-COVID care center, it's going to take a little while to get there. So in the meantime, um, I think that that would be something that, that we could work towards is continuing to educate medical providers so that when these patients do come into their office, they have a better idea on, on how to get them help. Oh, I wonder... Um... Just the the overall situation with COVID. I'll start again with Lisa O'Brien with this. Um, unfortunately, some of this has been politicized, um, and there's is debates about you know, rights and liberties, and uh, and I think some folks are just tired of the whole situation and uh, and just want to live their lives in a normal manner. I wonder what you do. What do you say to people? What what would you say to people on in terms of what you think ought to be done to so we can reduce the pandemic, maybe end it at some point. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, all the precautions that they've talked about, um, you know, wearing masks, washing your hands, um, the social distancing are all great. Um, You know, I know that some people have um, medical issues that don't allow them to wear masks, but For myself, you know, if I could go back to March when none of those, we weren't taking any of those extra precautions and, you know, do anything that would make it so that I, you know, didn't have to go through what I just went through the last eight months, like I would probably do almost anything. Um, It's just, you know, like I said earlier, it's, it's been life changing and it's not just life change for me, like, you know, even our, our families and our kids, we're not the, um, you know, moms and dads we used to be. We're not the husbands and wives that we used to be. And, you know, we hear a lot of people um, dismissing in a way, you know, with the 99% survival rate and, you know, people, they probably had underlying conditions or they were over 80 But like I said earlier, you know, most of the long haulers are very young. And I I also wanted to bring up um, 
about 85% of us never ended up in the hospital. You know, the vast majority of us had mild to moderate cases, and then we've ended up with these debilitating symptoms after. And so there's really no way to predict how this virus is going to affect you. Are you going to get the, you know, easy-peasy version that lasts like a day or you don't have any symptoms or, you know, are you going to be sick for eight months? Um, and so, there, you know, some things that people really need to understand and, um, you know, keep in mind. We just have about uh, two or three minutes left, uh, and I want to give a chance for Stacey Linderman and Christine Mon to, to give us some final words here as well. Uh, Stacey Linderman, what would you say uh, at the end of the program here? What would you like people to know? Lisa hit it pretty right on the head. Um, you've got these people who they they are anti-maskers, and it takes away my rights. I understand that. I really do. But by not wearing a mask, you're taking away my rights to be able to go out and feel safe. You know, that they're protecting me against them, and I'm protecting them against me. And... It just, you know, if you can't handle a mask for 20 minutes, you're not going to be able to handle that ventilator. And I don't like the fact that I actually had to be on the ventilator, but it changed my life, you know, and I see it from a whole different level. You know, people just take this serious. Wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, you know. We're not going to beat this unless the nation picks up as a whole. And we'll give uh, Christine Mon uh, the last word. Just got a, a, about a minute or two here. What would you like most like folks to know? You know, I would just say that COVID-19 isn't an illness that you want to gamble with. Um, I don't want to see anybody else end up dealing with the types of things that Lisa and Stacy and myself and others have dealt with or, or worse. I, it, it's, not a, it's not a gamble that you want to take. Mm. Well, good place to end the, the program. We've been talking with uh, members of the Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Group. Um, Lisa Bryan, you can find uh, your group on Facebook, I believe, right? Yeah, Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers. I also wanted to mention that tonight at 10 p.m., there's a special. 24 of our members were interviewed, um, and so that will be on KSL. And also tomorrow night, um, from 6.30 to 7.30, uh, they're giving us the whole half hour. So you'll hear stories from 24 of our Utah long callers. Excellent. Uh, so that that is what, uh, t- tonight you say and tomorrow? Yeah, KSL Channel 5. Tonight it's at 10 p.m. for about six minutes. Tomorrow night it'll be at 6.30 till 7. Okay. All right. We'll look forward to that as well. Um, so, uh, Lisa, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Uh, Stacy Linderman, thank you so much. Thank you. And Christine Mon, thank you. Thank you for having us. And uh, good luck to all of you. I uh, hope hope we get get well soon. Um, and uh, thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah. This is M. Capito, an integrative psychotherapist with ideas for becoming more resilient. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, dedicated his life's work to demonstrating the central role of meaning 
in our ability to overcome adversity. He defined three sources of meaning that we can intentionally build into our lives. What we give, what we experience, and what stand we take in the face of suffering. Nietzsche is often quoted, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. These three sources of meaning give us a purpose and the ability to maintain hope and find meaning in life despite its inescapable pain and loss. This is how we grow through adversity. Opportunities to reconnect with our why, with our own personal sources of meaning, can be found in creativity and acts of service, being fully present in meaningful encounters with our loved ones, and embracing our freedom to choose our attitude in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. You've been listening to Access Utah here on Utah Public Radio. Stay with us. Coming up next is Both Sides of the Aisle, followed by Undisciplined this morning at 1030 and Freakonomics at 11. This is Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening.